Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to another BrickFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and my next guest is going to bring a selection of five greats, which, for those that have been following this podcast, I've, I started off with a, um, with a narrow band of five great British horror films, and as, as it's progressed, I've realised that's easily exhausted, and... While it's interesting to hear different people's points of view, I was getting to talk about the same films all the time. And while I've got plenty of anecdotes, I don't have, uh, repeating the same anecdotes about a movie didn't strike me as that useful. So I've since moved into different worlds. This, this, today I released five great rom-coms. I've recently had five great rock documentaries with the Dock and Roll Fest. And five feminist themes in horror films. So it's it's a it's a... It's a format that's got as much flexibility and adaptability as I want. So, welcome to the show, Evra Masoy. Hi, Stuart. Uh, thanks. For, it's been quite a few years since I was last on the show. It was, yes. You, James, and um, and Russell sat on my setting. Yeah, I remember, man. After our rather drunk departure from Cannes. Yes, when we were delayed. That's why we were drunk. Let's let's clarify. I think it was we were drunk because we drank beer. <laughs> Yes, but I drank beer because we had to wait anyway. <laughs> now, what? How would you frame the five that we're going to do? What would you call it? Five Turkish exploitation films? Five Turkish cult films? So uh, there is a new term that's been sort of bandied about in the last five years or so, called you know remake exploitation. So I suppose these would somehow fit into that, but not necessarily. Um, they're basically Turkey's way of taking other cultures' key points or pieces of art and assimilating it into their own, you know, 
melding it with uh, pieces of Turkish history, Turkish characters, Turkish humor, and sort of creating something entirely new. So it's it's kind of a unique thing. I mean, the Philippines did it, you know, a, a bit in the 60s and 70s. Um, but like us, they focused on characters sort of appearing in their own local settings because a local audience is interested in their own culture more than, you know, anything foreign was the thinking behind it. So, yeah, um, re- remake-exploitation is an easy way of sort of getting around it, but it's not just a straight remake. You know, the films we're going to talk about are not necessarily shot for shots, you know, just remade in Turkey. They're sort of incorporate elements of the films that they're aping. Yes, it's like it's like the spirit of put through a Turkish prison. Yeah, exactly. And out the other side comes a comes a fairly unique Turkish product in terms of a film. Yeah. And and the other thing to remember is that a lot of the time when these films got made and then they got shown in cinemas, the originals potentially still hadn't come out because films could take a long time before they could get to Turkish cinemas. And so, you know, like, say you, you're talking about Star Wars and you're talking about Dunyai Kurtan Adam, the man who saved the world, the Turkish audiences would see the Turkish version first because it would be rushed through before the original could appear in the cinemas. Now, you've got two qualifications that make you the suitable candidate for this. Let's talk about your job first. Okay. You are the, what, direct director of programme for Fantastic Fest? Programming director. Do you know, my memory's like a sieve, isn't it? Sorry, mate. Um, you are the programming director of Fantastic Fest. Do you want to give a brief, um, a brief, a brief sort of pitch up as to what that is for those that might not know? Yeah. So Fantastic Fest is the largest genre film festival in the United States, but um, our definition of genre is very wide and inclusive. Um, we are a festival that's celebrating its 16th anniversary this year. We have, you know, we we run the gamut of exciting and interesting cinema from Hollywood films to, uh, you know, European authors to Asian weirdness. Um, and we're part of the Alamo Drafthouse chain of cinemas, which currently have 41 theatres in the States. Last time we spoke, you were, um, we were in Berlin, weren't we? Last time we met up. Yes, yes, we were. In the real life, we've obviously spoken since, but but in in the real life where we're sat at the same table drinking beer together, um, was at Berlin yeah. Alley, and you told us a fantastic story from last from last year's Fantastic Fest, which I'd uh, I'd invite you to uh, to to um, to tell my listener so that uh, we get a sense of Fantastic Fest versus a another festival, never mind a another genre festival. Um, you were talking about how Ariasta was treated um, when he came to your event. Ah, so um, we wanted Ariasta to come to the festival because I love Midsummer, and so does a lot of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And he was very keen, and he said, you know, I'd love to come and watch movies. And we said, sure. And we were talking to his publicist, and his publicist said, you know, if there's anything else you need Ari to do send me a list and you know we'll see if we he wants to do them and i was like sure so we sent him a few podcasts and one of the things we sent was our um family feud style uh competition that we do on mondays where two teams of movie lovers go head to head 
you know, Family Feud style, name the 10 best things Freddy uses to kill a person, you know, and then they have the buzz, whatever. And um, Ari was an incredibly uh, gracious and generous sport. So we had it so that he would have to sit on a replica of the throne of flowers from Midsummer, uh, whilst being walked in by uh, a few people who had their own costumes of Midsummer, complete with breathing flower uh, headpieces. Shine a light. And he never, ever um, blinked once. He was just completely into it. And to, you know, like... Um, add to the experience of being in a cinema, being in a festival environment, just like trying to build on what can we do with the films, you know, like how can we make this more than just this is a screening and it's over? How can we also break down that barrier? A lot of festivals suffer between the audience and the artists where we can create this sort of synergy where everyone interacts with each other and everyone is on the level effectively. Why do you think that's important for a festival? Well, so I can, giving an example from my own history and not naming anything, but yeah. I was a journalist for a while and I went to a lot of very big A-level festivals. Right. And, you know, still do. And a lot of the time there's a very clear division of tribes so you know press is over here and talent is over here and the distributors are over here and the audience is over here and they never cross and that just lets people stay in one place and hear the opinions and the conversations of people that they're similar to and gives no room for people to learn to listen or to talk to each other and that to me is very it basically creates a finite future because after a point, unless you somehow inject new blood, and it's like genetic mutation, right? Unless the genes mutate and adapt because they've seen other things happening in the environment, after a while they die away. And so, you know, like if scriptwriters end up hanging out with journalists, they might get something. Or if journalists hang out with audience members, they might look at a film differently. And so there's this sort of exchange of information, opinion, uh, uh, ideas that I think ends up sort of propelling more towards the future and creating more and creating possibilities more. And uh, you had a particular wardrobe challenge this, uh, this last Fantastic Fest. So we did, we wanted to have a sidebar which celebrated depictions of queer portrayals within genre cinema. Mm -hmm. And this was an effort led by my colleague, Brian Kelly. And, you know, we picked a number of films. Um, our sort of centerpiece was the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a very moving story about uh, the experience uh, of the lead actor of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and how it affected his life. And about his identity and about how he, you know, he was treated and how he found himself interacting with the world. Very moving, beautiful, absolutely great documentary. Everyone should seek it out. And so to sort of to sort of celebrate the screening of the film, we wanted to have a party. One of the great advantages we have is that we our venues come attached with their venue. So our cinemas always have a bar 
or, 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 or something of the ilk attached to them. So we can, you know, we can take the audience from the screening room and into the venue for a party. And we wanted to do a this party that supported the sidebar, the film. And so we reached out to LGBTQ organizations within Austin, and we reached out to drag queens within Austin, and we wanted to throw this event. And of course, I said, look, to show my support, I will go in um, full drag as well. And Brian was going to go in full drag. But what I hadn't sort of considered was that the makeup takes a while. <laughs> and so I had to introduce our secret screening, which was the magnificent uh, Dolomite is my name. And had to run to the makeup chair and then run back to do the Q&A. And at one point, I realized that I was going to be in full makeup, uh, potentially in drag. So I had to say to Netflix, guys, this is the situation and this might happen. And they were incredibly supportive. And they said, you know, of course, please, you can do the Q&A in any way you like. So I didn't have time to get dressed, but I did end up doing the Q&A um, for... Dolomite is my name in, in, in full drag makeup and uh, no one really blinked, which was lovely. <laughs> now, I think that covers your film qualifications. So do you want to tell us what your Turkish qualifications are? I, I'm Turkish. That's my qualification. <laughs> he's, he, I was born in Turkey in, in 1981, which is showing my age. I was, I was raised there till I was... 13 and then i moved to england and i've been here ever since okay and my love for cinema started in turkey so for those who don't know any turkish history i was born um at a time when turkey was going through great political upheaval during a coup d'etat by the army we only had one television channel so cinema was a huge sort of deal in turkey you know like Films came out late, but films always came out. And 80s were also the VHS boom. Somewhere like Turkey, you know, VHS was a massive, massive deal. Um, maybe a touch more so than, say, England or America, because not only was it a way of, you know, Turkish people watching films, whatever, but also mid-80s, Turkey sent a lot of um, workers to Germany who were looking for foreign labor to help them get the textile industries and and so on and that vhs became a way of those people keeping a link to back what was back home there were a lot of video labels that were directly aimed at um, these people who were now in foreign lands and so uh, a lot of us discovered cinema in a sort of vhs uh, uh, way very ramshackle and then strangely just the beginning of the 90s saw a new government which brought with it policies like of reagan and thatcher so you know full capitalization privatization of everything so suddenly we had satellite tvs we had um cable which we'd never seen before and there were 10 15 channels and they they, they couldn't buy uh, product or content enough to fill those channels. So anyone who's born around the years that I was, 79 to say 83, 84, um, they have a very sort of strange approach to culture 
they have their own culture. They have Hollywood, of course, which was dominating. And then they have this sort of huge scope of worldwide, you know, like you, we could, I could talk to you about The Prisoner or I could talk about American Serials or Young and Restless or Bold and Beautiful. There was, there was no, no one had any idea how these things fit together. So they just, it was like someone just puked culture into, onto <laughs> Turkey and we just absorbed it. Um, and this also sort of goes into the cinema. Turkey had a huge industry um, all the way up to the 80s. It was called a Yeshilcham, which means um, uh, green pine. That was the that was the name of it, like Hollywood. Uh, you know, that was our Hollywood, effectively. Mm. And we were making films nonstop. But as coup happened and budgets dried up, and you know, foreign films started coming in, it kind of stopped. But a lot of us, sort of looking back 90s onwards, started discovering those films and found out that what had been dismissed in Turkey as sort of, you know, just filler or B-movies actually had a lot of, to offer to an audience looking at it retrospectively. Did I just ramble a whole bunch there? No, no, it was brilliant. I was just about, you, you, you I was waiting to say, um, I think that qualifies you with the uh, with what we're about to do then, based on those two little segments. Fantastic Fest, Growing Up in Turkey. We're going to do five great re-exploitation films. And we're going to start, and I should say to the audience, I'll just give you the quick rules, Evram, for those that haven't heard this before. Yeah, of course. It's, um, it's five minutes of film. And every time we get to the end of five minutes, we're going to end like they do on Mastermind when the beeper goes, except my beeper is the sound of Edgar Broughton Band singing... Singing out, demons out. Um, that's our signal to uh, to move on to the next film. Only, only be, not to be cruel or anything. Only to make sure that we uh, we spend equal amount of time on each of the five films. There's a there's a lot resting on you here, Evan, with this. But I feel confident, and I'll and I'll ask I'll ask the stupid questions when I'm. I'll feeling... try to get it get it into you know a succinct uh, a summary to get people interested as possible. Well, no, that don't feel that pressure. I think, I think, I think, I think. Continue your. Um, I think that I love. I love the idea that that you've got this idea of some of this was happening as a kind of a general cultural explosion in response to Hollywood, and a cultural explosion in response to the to the coup d'état, a cultural explosion in response to suddenly laissez-faire. You know, there's a whole heap of things going on here, which, which um, I'm guessing you can you can personalize it from you know how you got to see these films as much as you can tell us about these films, um, yeah, and, and and why you think they're worth they're worth people's um, movie time to check them out. So, without further ado, we're going to. St- what I was sorry, what I was about to say was, um, I'm while I can obviously tell. <laughs> I can obviously pronounce the uh, the translation. That's no that's no fun at all if we're going to be talking about Turkish films. So um, I'll just be announcing the year, and then everyone will uh, will give the audience um, the the title of the film, um, which is a new one on me. But I think there's no point in me muddling through this and making a mess and embarrassing um, any Turkish listeners that might be there with my terrible uh, tongue twisting of uh, of these titles. So. Without further ado, Evram, we're going to start with 1967. Do you want to give us what that is and why you've chosen it? 
So uh, this is a film called Killing Istanbulda, which translates to killing in Istanbul. Um, it's not what you think it is. It's not the act of killing. It is a character called Killing who was a vicious criminal in an Italian photo comic series. Now, the reason I chose this film is twofold. One, to focus on the director, and two, to show that Turkey was influenced by not only Hollywood, but all of Europe as well. So um, this is in 67, it's in black and white, and it basically is the story of the anti-hero killing who comes to Istanbul to create a sort of, uh, you know, he has this dastardly plan, and one of killings... Um, signatures is that he wears a black and white costume styled on a human skeleton and he kills people in very vicious ways and he's always accompanied by a bevy of scantily clad women. Um, so the director who made this film actually made 123 films. Is, is, that, all, is, is that all? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that all? And they're, they're, you know, you'd think, oh, ha, like he'd made... Uh, four in 65, five in 66, uh, 10 in 67. So he's, you know, think that he's working round the clock nonstop. And a lot of these films are, you know, like there's four killing films in his career. He did a couple of Zorro films. He does a couple of Turkish exploitation films, you know, like with no references to anywhere in European culture. So this is clearly his niche. Hmm. And killing is very stylish, uh, you know, to me, seeing it in late night TV was a revelation because one, I didn't know we did stuff about anti-heroes. It's, um, you know, this this guy's a bad guy and he's the uh, sort of focus of the film. And then the other one is when you're growing up and 90% of culture doesn't represent you, like there is none of you, uh, what comes out of from the West. And then you suddenly start to see stuff that, is part of who you are, part of your DNA, part of the places you grew up with, um, you take an interest because suddenly you find something you can relate to. You know, it's a bit like when German TV for the first time did a spin-off series featuring a Turkish special agent. Um, they had the highest rate of uh, people tuning in to a new spin-off ever in German TV history because they'd finally taken a character and they'd shown this character to be something other than a drug dealer, kebab shop owner, or a worker. Um, Killing is was available on DVD, but I think it's now long out of print. But it's really worth a watch. The cinematography is stylish. Uh, the dialogue, not so much. Um, <laughs> it, it says, it, it's like, the, one of my favorite bits is when the main guy, the, there's a good guy, and he gets... Um, he gets given the task of stopping killing by Shazam, who is the, the, the sort of enemy of all things evil. And so he blesses on him like Hercules' strength and Zeus's violence and Neptune's immortality. So it's like Greek mythology thrown in with Italian comic books uh, in Istanbul. And it is surprisingly violent for something made in 67. You know, the deaths are uh, quite something. Um, what, what else can I tell you? I was I was given that when I started the process of um, getting ready for this, I knew nothing about it. And then 
I, to discover that there's a documentary from 2007 mm-hmm. looking specifically at the 1960s Italian photo novels called Diabolical yeah. Supercriminal. Um, yeah. To see that as the the what Turkey did with it, so the 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 the, the series of films killing, but also satanic in France, sadistic in America. This 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 little um, uh, what do you call it? Little splash f- f- coming out of Italy had a huge oh. cultural um, impact. It would seem. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, it's. You know, we loved Italian comics, and I still, you know, when I talk here in England or in America, people still don't know some of the comics that I grew up with because, you know, like they've been translated into Turkish, but they never made it into the West. Mm. Like Vampirella, Killing, Diabolique, uh, Martin Mister. There's all. Uh, there's there's Edgar. Time to move on. Right then, second on the list is. Uh, we're going to jump six years to 1973. What have you got there for us, Evram? I have got Uch Devadam, which translates to three giant men. Uh, a highly uh, controversial and wonderful uh, Turkish superhero film, completely unauthorized, of course, um, where you have Captain America, which we all know, mm-hmm. and um, Santo, the masked wrestler from Mexico, going up against the evil Spider-Man, who is trying to clean, who's trying to sort of get through counterfeit United States dollars um, through to the States so he can fund this criminal empire. The film starts off with the decapitation of a woman by a boat propeller. Um which is quite graphic. And it also was banned for years in other countries because it features a real death uh, of a pigeon um, that they killed for the film. So poor pigeon. I am quite sad. Um, it's The reason I chose it is uh, to demonstrate how in Turkey we could take three different sort of iconic characters and then completely muddle them up and turn them into something entirely different. So Santo is the master wrestler, lots of Mexican films, very famous in Mexico, but not necessarily everywhere else. But somehow he'd crossed over into Turkish, you know, uh, culture and uh, we loved him. So he had to be one of the heroes. Captain America was quite big around that time um, in Turkey. So he's the other hero. And Spider-Man, they don't really know who Spider-Man wants. So, like, his superhero powers, they don't exist in this. He's just effectively a stand-in for killing, if you will. You know, he's just a supervillain with just vicious and angry methods of murder. But can he swing on a web? No, no, he can't. Can he climb walls? Not really. Um, but it is Spider-Man, and his alter ego is called Peter Parker. Um his only unusual ab- ability is he just can't seem to die. So in the film, he gets killed a few times and doesn't die. And he loves using a switchblade and he loves using a gun, but no webbing whatsoever. For, for those listening in, why why is a film with such disregard for 
IP. Now, I know 1973 is a long while ago, but I don't think everywhere else in the world there was such sort of disregard for whatever intellectual property was. Why was that not an issue in making this film, do you think? Well, uh, so Turkey was considered a sort of wild west by most of um, the West, and things weren't imported and things weren't brought in legally. And uh, so what happened is that people end up taking their own versions of films and creating them. And, you know, like when I grew up with uh, comic books and, and computer games, we couldn't get, there was no way of buying an original uh, cassette or a computer game. Like you on, could only buy copies from other people. There was a this sort of huge underground market, but there wasn't an official market to counter it. You know, like, I can't get the VHS of XYZ. There's no way. It's not being imported. I will never see it. Or some guy would be doing it in his back room and you'd walk into his house and he'd sell you a copy for a minuscule amount. So that sort of attitude applied to the films as well. And people knew of these characters. So it wasn't like, you know, Turkey was sort of, oh, who is Spider-Man? So this was a way of getting people into the cinema. And every film that you'd get in America or in England would come to Turkey with a delay of two to five years. Wow. So... You know, like, yes, we can wait for Star Wars or we can make our own Star Wars and then release it and make a ton of money. So why wouldn't... That's amazing. So so this this isn't just underground filmmaking in the sense of... It's underground filmmaking to, to, to me seeing it in the in the sort of, you know, the, the lead table of what films is. But in, in, in Turkey, this was just on at your high street cinema. Yes. No, absolutely. I, they had to... They had to make and release these films at such a high rate. The the turnover was, uh, you know, uh, frightening. Like we would release, we would release two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty films annually. Like that's a lot, um, and especially considering the circumstances, you know, with no resources, no money, no budget, uh, constant sort of political upheaval. The fact that Turkey just kept churning them out. And you'd get, you know, we had around 2,500 cinemas. You could get somewhere around 247 million viewers. For... Finish that thought. Yeah, no, I'm just saying you could get around 250 million viewers for films. Like, that's not a small audience. No, no, not at all, not at all. No, that's, that's, that, that's the element of this, which is as interesting as the films themselves. It's the It's the... The, the backdrop to which they're being watched as much as it is the people making them. Um, you, uh, the, the, and just out of interest, given where we start the conversation about, you know, the, the, the sort of potted history of, um, politically speaking of, of Turkey, um, and the idea of a single state run station and things like that. Does that mean then was the films were completely deregulated? Like there was no oversight at all of that. You know, uh, there was oversight, somewhat, but I feel like it was a very loose oversight. Like, um, in in six in the 60s, there was a film rating commission. Mm. Um, but, honest to God, when I was growing up, I can't remember any period where I couldn't go see a film in the cinema. Like, there was no... You know, one of the biggest shocks to the system was when I came to England that I couldn't see films because they were 18 or 15. And I thought, 
what the hell is going on? You know, I saw Pulp Fiction when I was 12, I think. Um, I bunked school on a Tuesday and went to see the film. Um, I saw a lot of the stuff that I shouldn't have in the cinema. And so it was it was really, really sort of odd. And I know that there was rating board because in my lifetime, I saw things banned, like um, Basic Instinct was cut. I remember all this. But at the same time, I remember seeing a ton of stuff uncut. So... You know, I should, I should, I should look into more why the hell that was the case. Yeah, I just think, I just think, in terms of the domestic product, then was was there room for being subversive? Um, as long as you weren't pushing on certain political agendas, I think you could be okay, hmm. right? Like um, until '86, there had been no cinema law regulation in Turkey that hadn't been developed. There were films had been subject to taxation, content-wise, there wasn't really any sort of law around it. There was just some commissions which could do whatever they felt like. Right, then, we're going to go into 1974. So this is called Kartal Yuvasa, which roughly translates to Eagle's Nest. And it is a bona fide Turkish remake of Strodok's. Um, and I chose this film because, again, of two things. One is what it does with the story to set it in Turkey and its director, who I think is one of the most underrated directors in Turkish history, you know, always dismissed for being very B-movie, but in fact creating some really incredible pieces of exploitation that, still stand up today. Again, not very prolific, only 80 movies. Um, but uh, he, he's, he's, he's very talented, and uh, a lot of his films still stand up. So Eagle's Nest, very, very politically charged. We all know Straw Dogs, right? Mm. Sam Peckinpah, it's about sort of the contrast between modern man and a rural life. It's contra- it's a contrast about it's, it's a story about violence, about masculinity. Really interesting, very troubling, very brilliant. One of my favorite endings of cinema of all time. Yeah, and, and we should should add as well, it's the originally adapted from the Gordon Williams novel, The Siege of yes. Trencher's Farm from 1969. So the Turkish version mm. takes the story and puts it into Cyprus. Now, I don't know if you know, but in the 70s, Turkey had a war on Cyprus uh, in the Greek side and the Turkish side, and the Turkish army was sent in. Now, I'm not going to comment on politically, you know, like what was wrong and what was right, but, you know, what happened was that the island ended up being divided into two, and the Turkish side is still part of the Turkish Republic and is by and large unrecognized by any international country other than maybe a handful. So the Greek side is part of the EU. The Turkish side officially doesn't really exist. So if you ever went to Turkish, you know, Cyprus, the Turkish side, there are no brands. So there's no Starbucks, there's no Burger King. But what there are are uh, carbon copies of the brand. So there's no Starbucks, but there is brand bucks. And it's the same logo and the same menu and the same coffee. But because brands, multi-conglomerate brands can't officially come in because the country doesn't exist, Local people were very resourceful and created their own sort of 
uh, side culture. So Eagle's Nest is set on this island just before the sort of the, 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 the violence starts. And it's, it's about this guy, Murat, who is a doctor, and he's just studying in England, and he comes back with his um, fiancée, Mary. And what happens is that the, the, the sort of tension on the islands already started happening. And so the Greeks are kind of like can't stand the fact that Mary is married to a Muslim. And so when and Murat's not around, they, you know, she gets attacked like in the original film. Um, uh, Murat's mum has sort of a problem with her being cr Christian. So that's another angle. But it all culminates in the sort of siege we all expected. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it's very interesting how the story works when you add these different dimensions to it. You know, like this sort of sociopolitical, religious conflict, all of it. It's the kind of story that can take all these elements and still stand up to scrutiny. Um, obviously, it doesn't have the budget of Straw Dogs. It doesn't have the sort of um, eye for detail that Straw Dogs has. But watching it, it's surprising how fresh it still feels. And um, I think the siege scenes especially, you can see how much attention uh, Natuk Baitan, the director, uh, paid and how sort of they're clearly they're clearly sequences that were thought about and um, uh, crafted with an eye to matching that of Peckinpah. And does does the film have the same sort of reputation as Straw Dogs? No, no, no. I mean, it's long forgotten. It's it's um, other than a few sort of fans and of Turkish cinema. It's very hard. It's on YouTube, I think. You could see it, but it doesn't have any... Well, let's get on to our, our, fourth, of fifth, our fourth of five choices. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to jump into 19... Well, we're going to jump into the 80s now. So 1982, what have you got for us there? I have for you possibly the most well-known Turkish remake, remake exploitation of all time, uh, which translates to the man who saved the world. Um, I could not do a list of five and not include this film, which I love and a lot of people across the world love. We showed this at Fantastic Fest. And it's a, it's a, it's a film that, 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 that not only embodies everything I love about the Turkish cinema of the time, but it also stars Junaid Arkan, who was one of the biggest action heroes of Turkey and a man, an actor who I love deeply still and whose filmography I'm still discovering because, you know, in his lifetime, how many has he done actually? Oh, God, this is probably a lot. But he's a very handsome man. He started off as a lead actor, but ended up sort of moving into action films. He he had training from a circus so he could ride horses and he could also do, you know, and an sort of approximation of kung fu and karate and stunts. And he's starred in 324 films. 
according to IMDb, and I'm sure they, they probably miss a few. So he was this sort of iconic character. Historical action films, it's him. It, it, this detective series in the 70s, it's him. And then you have Dunyai Kurtana, which is basically an amalgamation of um, space opera and Star Wars, and it uses footage from Star Wars. It uses music from Moonraker, Ben-Hur, Flash Gordon, Battlestar Galactica, Planet of the Apes, Silent Running, uh, Black Hole, um, a little bit of Bach near the end. They use the Raiders March by John Williams. Um, and the way it came about was that the director knew Star Wars was coming, so just wanted to make a quick knockoff to get some money. And um, it, it worked. You know, to this day, it is still... It was panned universally by all the critics, one of the worst films ever made. But look through a midnight you know, perspective, it is an incredibly entertaining and charming movie, you know, with its uh, very ramshackle monsters, its paper mache space rocks. Um, it is uh, footage of Millennium Falcon that just spliced in. And it's it's an absolute favorite of mine. I must have seen it a, a hundred times, probably. And so with that hundred times, everyone, where where did you first see it? Turkish TV, late night Turkish TV. It just there it was, and you know the journey that you have with these films is very sort of. At first, you're amused by them, and there's a period where you're kind of embarrassed by them. And then if you go into cinema like we do as a career option, as something to embrace, as something to examine, to analyze, you realize what's underneath, just that surface level, and you start to embrace it. And, and now one of the things that I'm really cognizant and I'm very sort of dedicated to is we mustn't be embarrassed of our history, of the things we created. We mustn't be ashamed of these beautiful pieces of, you know, knockoff entertainment because they're also part of the identity that shaped all of us. And um, Turkey, it's a real problem. I was on a podcast just last week, and we were talking about the fact that directors still regard genre as something to sort of sniff at or look down on. And one of my experiences in the field has been when you talk to you know great auteurs, you've discovered that a lot of the time their love is for cinema comes from a very personal place. And these fil films fit into that place, you know? Whether I'm watching knockoff Star Wars or Turkish version of Jagged Edge, there's something about it that really excites me. It connects me to my roots and my history. So in a sense, there's obviously there's there's the com commercial imperative, but but I think there's, and, and, and I think it probably speaks more to the, the film we'll do at the end, the, the point I'm trying to make here, but there's... Um, but there is clearly a compulsion to want to make films, isn't there? As well, it's not just about the money. There's, there's a, there's a genuine desire to get things made. Yes, and you know there is an argument, and I believe on this uh, to a while that sometimes the end result isn't what the intention was, but it does end up there nonetheless. You can't deny it. You know, sometimes. Sorry, finish that thought. You shoot a scene because of you know economic reasons. But it ends up having uh, a meaning that is far deeper than you ever expected. And that's how art works, you know? Like the intention is one thing, but the end result is an entirely different thing. 
for, for sure, for sure. I was I I, I just did a re a re-edit on um, a 2016 interview I did with Larry Smith, who was cinematographer on Eyes Wide Shut and Only God Forgives, but also worked with Kubrick from Barry Lyndon onwards, really. And he he talked a lot about the excitement of when the film went off to be processed. He said, "You didn't know what you're gonna. You didn't always know what you're gonna get back. Obviously, you hoped it'd be good." a lot of times be better than you could have hoped. Like you've captured something that you could only have hoped for. Obviously there are times when it doesn't, but you're not in control of all that destiny and you're not in control of all that reality when it happens. Either. That's very true. That's very, very true. Right then, sir. Um, now in 1998, Gus, Gus Van Sant did what, and these are not my words, um, what um, harsh critics of the film described as a diabolical shot-for-shot remake of Alfred Hitchcock's classic Psycho. You're not going to talk about that because that's got bugger all to do with uh, Turkish cinema. You're going to talk about a 1995 film. Do you want to give us uh, the inside track on that one, Evram? Yes. The film is called Kader Diyelim, which translates to, let's call it, Fate. And it is a remake of Psycho. It's not only a remake of Psycho, it is a musical remake of Psycho. It's not only a musical remake of Psycho, it is an arabesque musical remake of Psycho. So backtrack a tiny bit. Mm. Music from the Middle East, especially Middle Eastern Arabic countries, let's say Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, um, they, it started to infiltrate Turkey somewhere around mid-70s, and it, it took real sort of heat in early 80s. Before, we were more sort of looking to West, and you'd get a lot of French and Italian pop songs with new Turkish lyrics, um, which a lot of us discovered later that they weren't original sort of uh, tunes. But at some point, we started to look more towards the Middle East, and this genre called arabesque started coming, you know, like, arabesque songs are heavily sort of uh, um, fate-driven, you know, it's all about fate doing you wrong and lost love, uh, very long in format sometimes, uses a lot of instruments local to the region, um, and they, they broke big in Turkey. And a lot of people associate the sort of overtaking of arabesque with the start of the downfall of Turkish culture, because end of 80s, early 90s, we hit a sort of dry period. You know, like from 350 films, we went to 15 films a year. You know, like everything took a backward steps. Hmm. And I'm this film is interesting to me for two things. One, it's shot on 16 mil, even though in 95, Turkey was very much in shot on video land, you know, like people were churning out films with these VHS cameras nonstop. And it's a period which I wasn't very, I was just about moving to England, 93, 94. And so I did not like the look of shot on video films. It, they looked like TV to me. So they sort of were not working to my sense of cinema. And so this was shot on 16 mil, so it has some cinematic quality to it, but it's really odd how it blends these two. It's like it's like having a 
uh, chocolate chicken roast. You would never, ever, ever, ever think anyone would put those ingredients together, yet somehow had, someone had. And the guy who stars in it, uh, Vatet Vural, is, is, is a, he was a sort of minor celebrity, arabesque singer. Um, and there's three or four songs in the film. There's a distinct absence of. Is he? Is he the cat? Is he the actor that plays the boyfriend? Uh, yes. Yeah. So he. He's so the, he's the reason it's a musical, isn't he? Yes. He was. Prom he, he was promised a musical that never happened. He was promised a film. He owed a film to the director. That's right. And so uh, he was going to make an arabesque <coughs> musical. And the guy had been paid, and the film never got made. And then he was like, "Well, I could do this other film," and. You know, he this guy is still a celebrity, so he agreed. And the film is mostly psycho, minus there's no there's no mother. You know, like Norman Mates has a good side and an evil side, which kind of switches. And he's a lot more murderous. You know, even before the sort of first the the the, the first murder. You know, like in Psycho, there's that whole period where you're following her with the money and everything. In the Turkish version, you have four people dead by the time she gets to the motel. You know, like Norman Bates is sort of—he's a very efficient psycho in Turkey. And you and, you and you see him, don't you? you? You, there's no denying. There's no, there's no silhouette. Oh is no, there? no, no, no. He's he he has a good and a bad personality. He switches, but you know who the murder. There is no mystery to who the murderer is. Um, it was shot in only two weeks. And, you know, the director says that this wasn't quite the movie he envisioned. But for me, it is it is like a snapshot of a country in transition, you know, on one side, uh, still adapted to keeping to its old ways of sort of, you know, taking other culture and, and, and molding it into their own. At the same time, there's these outside influences coming in from places we didn't really look to before. And 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 it's fascinating to me. I cannot say it's going to be in anyone's top five discoveries of any year, but it is well worth just for seeing. To me, these films represent. It's almost like you 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 you're watching a film. Ah. Sorry, go and finish your thought. I was going to say it's like realizing there's an alternate timeline you were never aware of, you know, like being in a dimension that you never knew existed and everything you know is there, just slightly askew. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to me, obviously, in the in the age of the internet that we live in now, that, that the more recent one of the five films is probably the hardest to find information about. Yes, and um, I'd also like to say before we go that, you know, like before we close on this film, the director also remade uh, Rambo. Which, which, as far as I can understand from, um, and I should give a shout out to neonharbour.com, who have uh, some interesting YouTube um, presentations that includes lots of looks at Turkish cinema, including this film. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, a company called Aztec Productions are getting... DVD releases out now of these films? Well, I think Aztec Productions have stopped. They came get, they released a few of these in uh, 2017, and it was a Turkish film historian, Ali Murat Güven, who was doing it. Okay. And he, I think he did two. He did Rambo, and he did he did do one um, which uh, is never been seen. It was a lost film called Long Live the Fatherland, which is another sort of 
Cyprus conflict set exploitation title, but he stopped. And then there was a Greek label for a while releasing these, but the chap who ran it passed away from cancer. And so these films are still kind of lost. I mean, they're lost in the sense that you can't watch them, Stuart, or your viewers can't. A lot of these films are getting restored and they're actually getting put on YouTube, but there isn't many subtitles. Right. Um, and so, like, whenever I find one with subtitles, I make everyone in my life sit down and watch it with me because I want to see what, how, how it interacts with the people I know at this point in time. Well, look, let's remind people then, what are the five films? I'll give you the years as your prompts. You give me the titles and we'll run through them. So we've yeah. just done five great re-exploitation films from Turkey. Uh, mm-hmm. We started in 1967 with what? Killing Istanbul'da. We hot-footed it to 1973. With Üç Devadam. And then we jumped another year to 1974. With Kartal Yuvasa. Then bang into the 80s. With Dünyayı Kurtaran Adam. And then finally 1995. With Kader Diyelim. There's a lot to, to mull over there and a lot of Googling to do for people that might want to find out some more. Um, but before you go... Um, obviously, we're talking as we're currently in various stages of lockdown in Britain and around the world. But um, what can you say about the uh, the sort of near middle future of what Fantastic Fest are planning to do at the moment? Well, we are in we are monitoring the situation and you know moving forward um, with planning a festival for this year. We will see what shape or format the festival will take is too early to tell, but we are working and we're working hard and, you know, I'm still seeing amazing films. Good man, good man. And actually, what I should ask as well is, I know this was a look back over kind of... Uh, hold on, that was Alexa talking to me there. Nobody asked her, nobody asked her opinion or anything. Just hold on a sec, uh, listener. Alexa, be quiet. <laughs> That's quite surreal every minute. Yes, it is actually. I'm not sure what words that I said or what 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 flowed into each other that sounded like that name, which I'm not going to say again. Um, but there's an edit for me to do. What I was trying to say was, while I've got you, and I've having done like a historical look at some sort of cult classics, lost classics, um, you know, in- interesting footnotes in Turkish cinema, I thought it'd be interesting to get your your view on just not, not nothing too detailed, but maybe a couple of contemporary Turkish films, maybe with a genre bent, that uh, that people could look out for from 21st century Turkish cinema. Oh, oh, uh, wow, you caught me out. That's as good. Um, let's see. I would recommend genre films, right? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, that's, that's my, that's my bias, so I'm just going to throw that in. Uh, 1997. Dark Waters, Karan Nuksular. It's a Turkish vampire film I would happily recommend. From 2019, Bina, uh, which is the antenna, is the English title. I would also recommend a documentary called Remake, Remix, uh, Ripoff, which is a documentary about the re-exploitation films of Turkish cinema. And that film was a sort of starting point for a lot of people to uh, go into Turkish cinema. So, you know, like, seek it out if you can. And I think 
that's that's going to be it that's more than enough that's more than enough thank you very much uh, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix mm. podcast thank you very much for having me it was uh, as always great fun Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.